Let's give the Lord a hand of praise for all of our dads and granddads this morning. You know, it's a difficult time. It's a challenging time to be a man. A number of years ago, I preached a message on how God uses my weaknesses. And we had a lady sitting right about where Ruth is. Ruth, wave your hand this morning. Right about where Ruth is that morning. I didn't know it, but uh, she came to me after the service in tears, and she corresponded with me for quite a while until she went to the Lord. She went to heaven to be with the Lord, and she served the Lord faithfully in this congregation for a number of years. But she just said to me, Pastor, and she went over this list of weaknesses that she had that were debilitating weaknesses and things that had threatened to cripple and destroy her life. And I just remember being shocked because she was such a woman of faith and power, but she wrestled inside with just feeling so deficient in life. And we had prayer standing right here. We corresponded for a long time. And I've thought about that so many times as your pastor, realizing that there are probably a lot of us that come here, not just men, but women and children as well, that somehow or another we're acutely aware of the deficiencies in our life. We're acutely aware of those shortcomings in our life. And we live in a very competitive culture. Matter of fact, we not only live in a competitive culture, we live in a, in a culture where the knives come out on Facebook and the knives come out on Instagram. People will just at the drop of a hat begin to slice and assassinate your character. So we live in a, in a culture where you almost think you have to be stronger than other people, you have to be tougher than other people, you have to be meaner than other people if you're going to survive in this culture. But God's Word has something totally different to say to us. We're in a culture that's confused about who they are. And I sometimes, as a, as a man, I get confused about what the culture wants from me, so I have to go back to the Bible and see what God wants from me and remind myself of what God calls a man, a husband, a father, a pastor, whatever your career field is, what God calls you to be in that field and how he equips you to do that. But there's so many times that, like this lady who sat there, <clears throat> and like a number of men that I've talked to through the years, we get stuck by a little two-word phrase, but I, but I. And I remember when I used to say those same things to the Lord because I said, but I, Lord, I, I, I'm not healthy enough to be a pastor. But I, Lord, I, I'm not smart enough to be a pastor. And I kept coming up with all these things. And then one day as I was reading my Bible, I was kind of taken with how many but eyes are in the Bible where people confess their weaknesses. Sometimes my weaknesses are not as glaring. I, I know that I should eat healthy, but it's Father's Day, and roast beef and gravy and fried chicken and mashed potatoes just sound so much better than quinoa and kale and tofu. Can I get an amen on that? I know I should work out and exercise, but I am tired. Can anybody bear witness with that? <clears throat> I know I should manage my finances better, <clears throat> but I just love to spend money on my toys and the things I really want. How many of you can you, you kind of go along with that? Some of you are ashamed about that. You talk about money and people get real ashamed real quickly, but we have all these but eyes in my life. They're called defeater beliefs. I read a whole 
psychology article and a psychology today article because of something that pastor tim keller who recently passed away who pastored in new york city he identified in one of his blog posts as defeater beliefs and gave the 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 reference for it and i went and read that article and i was just kind of shocked and i thought well we can find that all through the bible God called Moses to lead the children of Israel. And Moses says, but I am slow of speech. God called Jeremiah to preach to the people of Israel. And Jeremiah says, but I am too young. God called Esther to deliver Israel. And and Esther goes, but the king has not called me for 30 days. We've got all these but eyes that go all the way through the Bible. Jesus calls the apostle Peter, and Peter goes, but I am a sinful man, and begins to tell Jesus to depart from him and to go away from him. One time, God called Abraham and told Abraham, you're going to have a son in your old age. And, And Abraham says, but I am an old man. And I would never say this about my wife, but he goes in, she's an old woman. We're just dried up. And the Lord just kind of speaks to them in a way that kind of surprised me. God never one time denied their inadequacies. God never one time denied their deficiencies. God didn't say to Moses, oh, Mo, you're a good speaker, son. You can really do this job well. God never one time said to Abraham, Abraham, you're only as old as you feel. How young do you feel today, Abraham? He just simply goes, you know, Abraham, you're right. You're an old man. Your wife's an old woman, but I am going to do a miracle. How many of you love it when God comes in and goes, but God, that makes all the difference in the world, amen? Let's give him a hand of praise for that today. Now, this is kind of hard in the culture that we live in because sometimes when I'm talking to some of my lost friends and I'm in a group and a conversation comes up and I'm able to segue into it, the gospel really confuses people. And that's because the world... The world is basically divided into two groups. We're not divided into black and white and red and yellow. We're not divided into male and female. The Bible tells us that in Christ, all of those distinguishing marks have disappeared. So the world is basically divided into two groups. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 with me. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know that it's the very power of God. How many of you know that the message of the cross is the power of God? Say amen this morning. You're among the believers. So there's, the world is divided between two groups, the unbelievers that are perishing and the believers that believe in the power of the cross and Jesus to give us a brand new life. Charles Spurgeon said this, I expect to be amazed by three things when I first arrive in heaven. I will be delighted by those I find are actually there. I will be shocked to note who isn't there, whom I assumed I would see. And then I will be speechless with wonder as I realize that by God's grace, I am there. I agree with Spurgeon. How many of you agree with Spurgeon this morning? We will be amazed by the grace of God that we stand in the presence of God with our sins forgiven. I want to go to a passage in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning because Paul deals with these deficiencies in our life. God, Paul deals with these honest things about our life where it would be easy for us to say, but I. And he never one time falsely praises us. And you have to understand 
that is a really different way of communicating to the Corinthians. It's a different way for me to communicate to you and to communicate to our culture today. Because when I was in Corinth and studying in Corinth and then later got to go back to preach in Corinth, one of the things, Corinth was a tough culture. Corinth was a competitive culture. Corinth was a culture where people prized themselves on their education. They prized themselves on their Sophia, their wisdom. They prized themselves on their wealth and their influence. They were a very influential city. Rome zealously guarded Corinth. Corinth was a very sensual city as well. And the people that made up the church in Corinth, they were not really the best of society. They were not the cream of the crop according to Corinthian cultural standards. They were the dregs of society. They were slaves. They were people that were poor. They were people that by and large were not educated. So when you're reading the Corinthian letter and the, letter, the questions that they write, Paul, you're kind of taken with the fact that these are very humble people, but they're set on knowing God, and yet sometimes they can fight with themselves. And orators in Corinth, if they wanted to gather a successful crowd, an influential crowd, they would flatter them. It would be like me standing up here and telling you this morning, you are the most godly people in the world. It would be like me standing up here and telling you this morning that in the eyes of Jesus, there's no other church as wonderful as this church. It would be like me telling you if you came to me and you said, you know, I'm not a very good speaker. And I went, oh, yes, you are a great speaker. Just begin to think good thoughts and you will speak well. Or if you were to come to me this morning and, and say, you know, I'm not a very loving dad and your kids are afraid of you, I go, just think loving thoughts because you really are a good dad. No, Paul does it in any way try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to make them feel better about themselves. What he does is he points to them how that sometimes being low on the world's influence scale gives you the opportunity to be high on God's influence scale. How many of you would like to have that this morning? Say amen today. Well, stand with me and let's read the word of the Lord this morning. Paul starts writing this Corinthian church. Remember the culture I just told you about? And he says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, few of you were wise in this world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. In other words, this is a very strange way. This is an odd way to begin to address a church in this culture. And he's going to invite them now to review their deficiencies and their weaknesses it would be like me standing up here this morning and going, you know what, let's go over every one of your weaknesses and every one of my weaknesses, and some of us, we just feel like slitting our wrists this morning. We'd be ready to go home, you know? Because we know our weaknesses. We know where we're weak at and we're deficit at. But he tells them you can expect great things because God is looking for people like you that will give the glory to God because you know that the wisdom you have, the influence you have, the power you have, the wealth you have, God gave it to you. You didn't do it for yourself. A self-made man does not exist. God makes a man or a woman. Somebody give him a hand of praise this morning. Hallelujah. So he goes on. He said, instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. Another way you could say that is, but God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. He chose things that are powerless. You don't want to be powerless in Corinth. 
He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. Read that with me. God has united you with Christ Jesus. Read it again like you believe it. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scripture says, and he's quoting from Jeremiah, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. My Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for how you have fed my soul. I thank you for the gift to be able to prepare this message and to just, Lord, bask in it and to meditate upon it. And I pray that now, somehow, you will release this word and let, let it explode in every heart and life that's here and those that are watching online as well. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. Grab a pencil and let's get ready to take some notes. Instead, God, or but God. What does God do? God always overturns human expectations. God always overturns human expectations. Some of you, you're very surprised at where you're at in life. Some of you, you're very surprised at the success you've had in your life. Nobody's more surprised than your mother-in-law at where you're at in life. Nobody's more surprised than your father-in-law at where you're at in life. God has this way of overturning expectations. God reverses who matters in the world and who doesn't matter in the world. Because so much of the time, we're always looking and we're awed and impressed at powerful and influential people who care nothing about God. God elevates the lowly. When you think about how Jesus came and he dwelt among those that were lowly, he, he called himself meek, he called himself mild. When you think about Jesus, he just reverses that whole process. Jesus changes death into life. Jesus turns our guilt into innocence. He washed blood, washes away all of our sins. We sang about it this morning and declares us not guilty. And Jesus takes what the world considers as failure and it turns it into our greatest victories. It's why we say sometimes, but God, the world doesn't get it. The world doesn't get the last word. God does. Somebody say amen. The world will never have the last word on my life, your life, or this church. The world will say your education defines you. Your world will say your addictions define you. Your world will say failure defines you. And for some of you, maybe the world has said your past will define you, and you have lived in fear and failure and shame because of your past. And for others of you, the future frightens you because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. But today, God has come to let us know God God turns our weaknesses, God turns our deficiencies, God transforms those into strength because where I am deficient, Christ is all sufficient. Can we give him a hand of praise this morning? Christ is all sufficient. We don't use that word much anymore, Christ the all sufficient one. But our Puritan forefathers did. Those that came before us used that phrase often because they leaned into the sufficiency of God, especially during times of persecution. 
Joseph could, could forgive his brothers one time. We talked about this a little bit last week because what they had meant for evil to the him, he said, but God, say it with me, but God, say it again, but God, say it one more time, but God, God meant it for good even though you meant it for evil. That's what God does in our life. Look at what Paul said in this passage. He says, number one, God united us with Christ Jesus. Now, that's an important point in the New Testament. That phrase, in Christ, appears 89 times in the New Testament. In Jesus appears nine times. In Him appears dozens of times. Now, you have to do a little bit of filtering there when you talk about in Him, so you're sure it's talking about Jesus. The reality is that the Bible says to you and I that we are connected to Jesus Christ. We are one in the Lord. We are one in Christ. Together, you and I are one body in Christ. Look at your neighbor this morning, unless you don't know them, and say, Jesus and I are like that this morning. Would you do that? Jesus and I are like that. And that's true. Becky and I are like that. But Jesus is like that. So when you look at our home, Becky and I are, and Jesus are like that. When you look at my family, and I don't have enough fingers with all my grandchildren now, we're like this in Jesus as well. Somebody give him a hand of praise. I want to be united with Christ. The Bible says Jesus is our wisdom. The root of the problem in Corinth was their pride. God's love causes him to hate pride, and the root of a lot of human problems is pride. Why is it that God hates pride so much? Because pride teaches us to rely on ourselves. Humility and love teaches us to rely on God. And when we rely on God, the possibilities are unlimited. Thirdly, he says Jesus has made us right with God. Listen, friends, that is good news to be made right with God. When I've had ruptured relationships and those relationships have been healed through forgiveness and reconciliation, I can't tell you what that means. Our relationships are strong when there's been forgiveness and restoration, when there's been healing between us. There is a healing relationship that I believe can exist between you and I and the Lord right now that even Adam and Eve did not get to enjoy because Adam lived this side of Calvary. You and I lived this side of Calvary. Adam lived this side of Pentecost. You and I lived this side of Pentecost. We have been washed in the blood. We have been filled with the Spirit. We have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and we have been made one in Jesus Christ. Somebody shout amen this morning. That's what God has done in our lives. Jesus has made us pure and holy. If you'd have known me before Jesus, you would not have put those two words with my name, pure and holy. But God has become all purity and all goodness and all holiness. God has given me a life worth living. He's given you a life worth living. We don't live in futility and fear of the future. We live in faith in what God is doing in us today. And I love what he said next in that passage. Jesus freed us from our sin. Sin no longer dominates. Sin no longer controls. It's not that we don't wrestle with it. It's not that we don't boast, that we don't battle it. But we boast only about the Lord. In other words, we recognize that everything we are, everything we have, everything we're going to be, it's all because of Jesus. Now sometimes, sometimes I feel like Psalm 73 and verse 26. Look at this. My flesh or my emotional health, my body, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Would you read that with me? My flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, just be honest with me. Don't leave me up here hanging by myself, but how many of you would say, I've been there? I'm a Christian, but I've been there where it felt like my heart, my mind, my flesh. Sure, we've battled with those deficiencies, but put the scripture back up again one more time, Psalm 73, 26. But he says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion forever. Do you ever remember when maybe your mom or your dad would say to you before dinner, don't eat any candy before dinner because it'll ruin your appetite? How many of you, your mom or dad ever said that to you? How many times did you go and sneak that candy? Now, you don't have to lift your hands this time. How many times did you go in there and grab something and just maybe slipped it right here and just walked out of the room with your sweater buttoned or something and you went to the basement or the backyard and some of you are going to raise your hand. You just got to confess. I understand. You know, and you ate that anyway and then it came time for and you weren't hungry because sugar has got this way of just satisfying your hunger desire. Sugar's got this way of satiating your hunger desire, and so you miss out on the vitamins and the minerals and the real nutrition you need, and you're just consumed with sugar because of the buzz that it gives you. Friends, that's a way that a lot of the things in this world are. Sex and power and wisdom and money and influence, they can become a sugar buzz for us that kill our hunger for God. When they're actually things that God wants to bless us with, but first things first. God is my portion. God is the strength of my heart forever. Let's always keep Jesus first in our lives. Somebody say amen again this morning. He is the strength and the portion of our life because like sugar disappears, God will never disappear. And here's what comforts me. It's number one, God sees my heart. God sees my heart and he doesn't reject me. Look at uh, 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7. Now, this is the story of how David was called. David was not influential. David was not particularly good-looking. David was a kid. He was a teenager, probably. Probably acne-faced. Some scholars believe that when you read that David was a ruddy youth, that it meant he had problems with acne. I mean, he was not the kid that you'd look at and go, this is the kid that's most likely to succeed in high school. But the Lord said to Samuel, as Samuel was calling his brothers up, he said, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. He's looking at one of David's brothers. They're good-looking boys. They're strong boys. They're handsome. They're warriors. We read about them later. They are strong warriors. And they're the ones that you would vote most likely to succeed. And God's not rejecting them from his love. He says, but they're not going to be the king. And he says to Samuel, he says, the Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And you see, we live in a culture that is so consumed with the outward appearance of our lives. We live in a culture that's so consumed with all of the attributions of success, what kind of watch you wear, what kind of clothes you wear, what kind of house you live in, what kind of, where did you go to school at? I was listening to a conversation last week in a restaurant 
where somebody was demeaning someone else, a friend of theirs. They didn't have the courage to save their face. They were demeaning the fact that they got their degree from a community college rather than a prestigious college that they had gotten their degree from. Something about that just made my blood kind of boil because it's the spirit of pride in this world. And just as a aside, do you know on the, on, the, on the large scale, according to stats I've read, people that graduate from community colleges do a lot better than people who graduate from the most prestigious colleges in the nation today. Never let the world fool you by outward appearances. Look at what Paul says. Paul goes again, and he, he's just going to review his deficiencies. He says, now there were, let me back up here. There were preachers, they were jealous of Paul. So they claim to have bigger miracles. They claim to have more powerful sermons. They claim to be more successful. They claim to be smarter than Paul. I mean, there was real competition in ministry. When I was uh, working on my master's, I did a paper on the healing evangelist. And there was a lot of scandals that took place back in the 50s because television and tent meetings and things like that were real big and so I called the son of one of those people and um, I said I'm doing my masters would you help me on this paper and he said he was happy to help me we corresponded we talked on the phone several times he said I don't know what happened he said there were tremendous miracles under my dad's influence but my dad would oftentimes have people go stand outside the tent and pay a pilot to fly over and then advertise overflow crowds. He says, and the tent would be empty and there would be people standing outside. There was no need to do that. God was already honoring his ministry. His ministry ended in disgrace. Years later, I'm in a, in a service and a man by the name of Paul Kane, who was featured on the cover of Christianity Today magazine, recently featured in another magazine. He's been in heaven for a long time, but... He, uh, he and I had breakfast together the next morning at his invitation. He had been a part of another one of these ministries, and he said to me, it got so competitive. He said, I quit the ministry because people were trying to compete with each other. Now, I'm not saying that to try and expose the dirty underwear. What I'm saying is if we are not careful, even as people who see the power of God and the miracle power of God at work in our lives, we can begin to get competitive and try to compare who's better. Remember the Corinthian culture. They wanted to be flattered. They wanted influence. They wanted wealth. But Paul looks at his deficiencies and he's honest about them. So talking about these, these, these competitive pastors, he says, are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I've served him far more. I've worked harder. I've been put in prison more often. I've been whipped times without number. I faced death again and again. This did not sound like a successful pastor in the Corinthian culture because if you were successful, you didn't get whipped. If you were successful, you didn't get put in prison. If you were successful, you didn't face death again and again. So Paul is saying, here's where I'm deficient. They sound great. They sound really big. And he goes on and admits something else. Look at this next passage with me. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. In other words, he's saying, God's even letting the devil buffet me. God's even letting the devil torment me. None of these competitive preachers would have said that. They'd said, oh, I've got him right here under my foot, bless God. 
And Paul said, I'm being tormented. He said, three times I begged the Lord, take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. What is he saying? Where I am deficient, Christ is all sufficient. Say that with me. Where I am deficient, Christ is all sufficient. Let's say it again. Where I am deficient, Christ is all sufficient. Look at your neighbor this morning and say, Christ is all sufficient. Christ is, doesn't that bring strength to you this morning? Because I've got a lot of deficiencies in my life. I've got a lot of weaknesses in my life. I've got a lot of flaws in my life. But when God looks at me, he doesn't see my deficiencies. He sees Jesus, and Jesus is the all-sufficient one. Hallelujah. But not one time has God ever said to me, but, oh, Denny, you know, son, you really are a great pastor. You really are a great preacher. God puts his fingers on those flaws in my life, and he goes, Denny, sometimes you're impatient. Denny, sometimes you are vain. Denny, and he'll just put them on there, but then he reminds me, Christ is all sufficient. And I've learned to boast about my weaknesses, keep reading with me, so the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and the hardships and the persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. Read this last sentence with me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Mo, you may not be a good communicator, but I am all sufficient. Jeremiah, you may just be a boy, but I chose you when you were in your mother's womb, and I am all sufficient. Esther, the king may not have called you, but you called for the king knowing you could lose your life because I'm all sufficient. Abraham, I know you and Sarah are way past the age of childbearing, but I am the all-sufficient one. I can cause the infertile to become fertile. God says to you and me, I am all-sufficient for you wherever you're at. God empowers. Jesus said it like this, but with God, everything is possible. Matthew 19, 26. Read that with me this morning. But with God, everything is possible. So dads, what do we do like with this? I'd say, number one, dads, love like Jesus. The Bible tells us that we are to love our wives and therefore our families the way Christ loved the church. And I would say to you that are children and grandchildren this morning, honor your dads according to Mark chapter 6 and verse 1. Here's what I want you to get today. The Bible says, now look at me, don't miss this on Father's Day. Dad, you may feel like some confusion is in your life. You may feel like you're not a very godly man. You may feel like you're not all of these things. You may be consciously aware of your deficiencies, but I want you to confess all week long, Christ is my all-sufficient one. I don't want you looking at your weaknesses. I want you looking at Christ. I don't want you boasting about how clever you are, how powerful you are. I want you boasting about Jesus. And I want sons and daughters and grandchildren and wives here, I want you to honor your fathers, honor your husbands, honor your granddads. For the Bible says that if we will honor our parents, it will go well with us and we will live long on the earth. 
Everybody looks at living long on the earth. I'm looking at it will go well with me. I want it to go well with you. I want it to go well with me because I love and honor my fathers and my grandfathers. Can we give him a hand of praise for that today? <laughs> Hallelujah. Secondly, dads, I want you to learn to coach like Jesus and receive from your dad. I want you to learn to coach like Jesus. When I read how Jesus blessed people rather than cursed people. You see, let's just take for a moment, let's take something really, let's just take, let's just say you're teaching your son to play football or play baseball. And maybe your son is, is swinging the bat and, and he's missing the ball and you don't come to your son and you don't curse him by saying, son, you're never going to be a great baseball player. You're never going to amount to much. You don't come to your son and say, oh, son, that's okay. Everybody misses. But you come to your son and say, now, son, I want you to keep your eyes on that ball. I want you to learn how to time it. I want you to learn how to swing. Maybe you even hire a coach or you take him to the batting cage and you teach your son or your daughter how to swing that bat. You're blessing them by coaching them. Are you listening to me? You're blessing them by coaching them. If you're a coach, you don't go out to your team and go, you guys are a bunch of losers. You guys are a bunch of sissies. We're never going to win if you're playing like this. You're going to defeat your team. Or if you come in and say, oh, guys, it doesn't matter how you play. You know, it doesn't matter. We're all winners, you know. It doesn't matter if we're last. I don't want to be last in nothing, okay? He says, it doesn't matter. You're still going to be coaching losers. But you come to them and say, guys, I've seen you in batting practice. I've seen you playing. I've seen you here. I know we can defeat this team. I know we're better. You're coaching them. And when you bless people, you're coming alongside of them and you're coaching them. But on the other hand, wives, children, grandchildren, you've got to receive from your dad. You've got to receive his blessing. You've got to receive his wisdom. You've got to receive his coaching. Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, he left a city because nobody would honor him. They wouldn't receive from him because he wasn't the kind of Messiah they wanted. One time Ben said to me when he was much younger and he wanted something that we couldn't afford and I looked at Ben and said, son, I'm just sorry we can't afford it. And he puts his hands on his hips and says, why couldn't a rich family have adopted me? <laughs> and I said, because God wanted you in this family. God wanted you to learn from me and I love you. And we had a long conversation about his disappointment. So what do we do with this? We don't give up and we don't give in to sin. Don't give up on your family. Don't give up on your marriage. Don't give in to sin. So let us not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. And then finally this week, take this, dream and pray. What does God want to do in your home, in your marriage, in your children, in your grandchildren? I want my grandchildren to know Jesus. I want Josiah healed. I pray over him. I ask people, I beg people, pray with me for Josiah. I remind them, whenever you speak Josiah's name, it means the Lord heals. 
And yesterday, somebody called me and said, I've been praying for Josiah. I just wanted you to know in my mind, I, I see him healed and I see him whole. And I always tell everybody the same thing. I don't want a partial healing. I don't want a semi-healing. I want to see Josiah healed and restored and him and I stand together and preach the gospel together. And you might call me insane. You might call me foolish. You might call me ignorant. You might call me superstitious. I may be all of these things, but Christ is the all-sufficient one. And I believe that with human beings, it's impossible. But I know with God who heals the cripple, who restores sight to the blind, who saves lost people, who multiplies the fish and the bread and feeds the thousands, and who is coming back one day to rescue us and take us home to be with him. I believe with man it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So dream and pray big, hairy, audacious prayers for the glory of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me this morning? Dads, tell your children the gospel. How can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Pray with your children. Pray with your grandchildren. Love on them. Is it this weekend, VBX, honey? If you haven't signed up to help us with VBX this weekend, Help us. Just tell a, God, a child about Jesus. Just be present with them. There are children who come to our VBX that sometimes have never heard the Bible stories, and they'll say, is this true or are y'all making this up? How are they going to know unless someone tells them? And although I've preached to men this morning, this is true for every single one of us in here today. In whatever area of influence God has given you, so I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over you. God, in Psalms 103, you tell us that you forgive us of all of our sins and our iniquities. And you wipe them all away, never to remember them against us anymore. So, Lord, right now, I pray you will break the fear of the past and the fear of the future. For you have united us with Christ by faith. Lord, Isaiah 53 tells us, by your stripes we are healed. I thank you that there is healing spiritually, mentally, and physically this morning for all who put their faith in you. Lord, I pray for those who haven't developed a taste for the things of God, the sugar of this world, whether it's YouTube videos, Netflix, making money, success, education, whatever it is, that God will put it back on the shelf And that we will celebrate your love by pursuing you, Lord. Reminding ourselves that you are the all-sufficient one. You have become to us wisdom, forgiveness, life, joy, and peace. And you've united us to one another. So I bless 
this congregation this morning and those watching online to walk out of here bathed in the knowledge that God is for them and not against them. And so, Lord, we boast in the power and the strength of Christ that you are all sufficient. If you've never committed your life to Jesus or if you've wandered away from your faith and you would say to me, Pastor, I'm really not serving the Lord. I'm not walking with him like I used to be. One time I was close to Jesus. One time I served him, but now I've wandered far away. Or maybe you're, you've just heard the gospel for the first time. You can come home to Jesus. You can come home to Jesus. God loves you. He's not against you. He's for you. And what he did at Calvary was so that your sins and my sins could be forgiven. So I'm just looking at you in the eye on the camera. If you're here on, in the church, would you pray this prayer with me? Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for forgiving my sins. Thank you for loving me. I am filled with deficiencies, but I confess that you are my all-sufficient Savior. I don't understand it all, but as much as I know how, I give my life to you today in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. And if you prayed that prayer, would you please let us know, whether you're on Facebook or YouTube or Church Online, let us know that you did that. And if you prayed that prayer here at Woodland today, let me know that you prayed that prayer. Let someone know that you prayed that prayer. And we have a gift to help you get started with your walk in faith. I love you. God bless you. Say it with me one more time. Christ is our all-sufficient one. One more time. Christ is our all-sufficient one. God bless you. Go in peace.